Well, now as we come to the Word of God, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we ask now as we open your Word that you would help us to be like newborn infants, that we would long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that we may grow up into salvation. We pray that you would use your Word to teach us this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been saying, today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the central figure of Christianity. And it is that resurrection that gives us hope. The English writer G.K. Chesterton is credited with saying this. He said, there is one thing which gives radiance to everything. It is the idea of something around the corner. It is the idea of something around the corner. Now, I would alter that just slightly to say it's the idea of something good just around the corner. The idea that something is good right out of sight, but is is close and is there. But the point of the saying is that the expectation and joy of something in our future brightens anyone's life and day. And this experience of expecting and looking forward to something is what we call hope. It's been said that people can't live without hope. Doctors report that those without hope see their condition deteriorate very quickly. And this is because we as humans were made to hope. And yet, as we know, there is much in this world that dashes hopes. Even as we speak, this virus has, uh, dashes, has dashed people's hopes of living long lives. People's economic troubles are are blowing away hopes of successful businesses, of early retirements, or even meeting daily needs. And the tensions that we see developing between nations on a global scale, it it brings into question any hopes of, of there being peace in the world. And in the midst of all this bad news, people are asking, is there any hope? Is there any way that we can have hope in this world today? We look to all sorts of things to find hope, but only one source can provide hope in all circumstances of life, and that is the true and living God. Those who trust in God have a hope that is unafraid of what the future brings. It is an undaunted hope, an undaunted hope. And maybe you're listening today and you are looking for hope. I encourage you to keep listening as we will outline how it is that you can have hope. Or maybe you have faith in God, but your hope is weak and and you find yourself more prone to fear. I encourage you too to listen to what God's Word has to say, to know how you can have renewed and undaunted hope in these days. The passage we're going to look at this morning that helps us think about this hope is found in the book of 1 Peter. And I invite you, if you have a personal copy of God's Word, to turn there to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible directly in front of you, then you you can look it up on your phone or on another tab on your internet browser uh, looking for 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter, this book found in the New Testament, was written to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is a region of the ancient world that today is occupied by the country of Turkey. Now, the Christians who lived scattered throughout this region were being persecuted. 
They had followed Jesus, had uh, confessed Christ as Lord, and the people that lived around them didn't like that and were beginning to put pressure on them. Some of it was, was just uh, local pressure. Some of it was governmental pressure. But either way, they were experiencing trials or fiery trials, as Peter calls it in 1 Peter chapter 4. And it's important for us to realize this because these verses we're going to look at today that talk about hope were not written to Christians in comfortable circumstances. They were written to Christians in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials. And so, while these truths are true for all Christians in all circumstances, they become really precious for Christians who are suffering. And so let's see how Peter chooses to begin this letter to these beleaguered and suffering Christians. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just simply going to read verses 3 through 5. Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why can we have undaunted hope? This text gives us four reasons. But before we look at those four reasons, I want to say a word about this living hope and what, about what hope is, biblically defined. If you look up hope in the dictionary, it's going to say something like this. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. A feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. And we use this kind of language of hope all the time. We hope that something will happen, which simply means that we wish or desire that it would happen. In fact, I'm sure many of us have probably said recently that we hope this stay-at-home order ends soon. We don't have any certainty about when the stay-at-home order will end, but we wish or we say we hope that it would be lifted soon. But it's important to note that when we come to the Bible, that the Bible doesn't use the word hope in this way, in terms of wishful expectation or simply a desire for something to happen. When it speaks about hope, it speaks about confident expectation. An expectation that, that, is, that is sure, that is, that is absolutely dependable. Author John Blanchard has stated it this way. He says, hope is biblical shorthand for unconditional certainty. Hope is biblical shorthand for unconditional certainty. Unconditional certainty about what? Well, it's about the good future promised to us by God. It's what's around the corner for us as believers. Now, Paul says in Romans 8, he says, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So hope, biblically defined, is looking forward to a future time, a future thing that God has promised to us, that we don't see now, but we know is there because God has promised it to us. 
And it's not to, that we just desire it, but we can be absolutely confident that it is there and that it, it will be there for us because God has promised it. We can be certain, we can be confident in our future. Therefore, in our passage here in 1 Peter, he says that Christians have a certainty about the future that cannot be changed by anything. It's a, it's a certain expectation Even though you and I cannot see our glorious future, even though we have never beheld with our eyes what heaven will be like, we can be confident of it, believer. We can be sure of it. We can cling to it every day of our lives, knowing that it is an established thing. A Christian's hope is living as well. Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope. This is a a hope that's vibrant and active. It it grows with us. Our hope in God and and our hope in what he has promised grows with us day by day and year by year. Our hope grows stronger. It it gets bigger and stronger as the years go by so that we long and hope for that which he's promised with, with greater fervency. And it's a hope, believer, that can never die that can never be dashed to pieces. It's a hope that is, is never vanishes. So Peter tells us that we have a living hope. But why can he say this? In other words, why can believers in the Lord Jesus Christ know that our hope is certain? Again, let me suggest that the text gives us four reasons why we can have undaunted hope. The first is because we have a merciful Father. First, we have a merciful Father. And we see this in the beginning of verse 3. Look at it with me. Verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter breaks out here in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. Verse 3 begins with this exuberant praise to God. His, his heart is full of gratitude and praise for all that God has done. And so he simply breaks out in an expression of worship to God. And this worship that he, we see here is really the theme of the entire paragraph. That, uh, that Peter is simply giving support for why he and the other believers should be praising God. Everything that Peter is going to say relates back to this giving blessing and praise to God. Now, notice that his praise is directed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we know, the New Testament and really the Bible as a whole reveals God as one God yet in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible also declares that the Father is the fount from which all goodness flows. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Son yields and submits to the Father. We know from the Gospel of John that the Father commands the Son and the Son obeys. The Father sends the Son and the Son goes. And yet we may want to make abundantly clear that Such a difference in role does not diminish the dignity of the Son, nor is there any sense in which the Son is less than God, that He is a creature. The Bible is very clear that He is God, very God. He is the divine Son of God. And yet, 
in light of the gospel, in light of all that God has done for sinners, Peter directs his praise to the Father because he, it is from him that all these blessings flow. Peter recognizes that everything we have begins with the Father. And so we see here that salvation begins in the mind of God, not in the mind of man. Peter says that it's according to his great mercy that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's according to his mercy. It all begins with him. Because, you see, people are sinners by nature. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, they doomed the rest of humanity into sin and separation from the Lord forever. And therefore, there are none who love God. There are none who fear God. There are none who honor him as God on their own. The Bible says that we have all turned to our own way. We've turned out of God's way. We no longer want to follow and listen to him. We want to do our own thing. We live our own lives according to our desires instead of God's. And it's because of this rebellion that we are all destined to experience wrath and hell forever. This is the destiny of all mankind without God. You see, our treason against our eternally holy creator demands such a just punishment as our condemnation in hell forever. The Bible describes hell as a dreadful place. It's a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth, with a place of torment for those who have refused to repent of their sins. I read one author described it as a place of darkness in which there is never a sunrise, a place in which there is never any light, never any reprieve, from the pain. It's a horrid place, but one that all of us deserve to be in. And so therefore, we are in a desperate situation because we can't save ourselves. We're eternally lost. We can't, we can't save ourselves and we cannot save anybody else. The only one who can save us from the wrath of God that hangs over each one of our heads is God himself. God is the one who punishes sinners, and yet God is the one who saves sinners. He's the only one that can do that. We need help from outside humanity. We need help from outside this circle of, of humanity. The Father knew that we needed help, and he planned to rescue us from our plight. Why did he choose to do that? Why did he choose to rescue us? What does Peter say? He says it's according to his great mercy. It's according to his great mercy. You see, the father did not choose to save rebellious sinners simply because he was obligated to. There was not the sense in which he simply, uh, there were some stipulations that we fulfilled and so he felt obligated to go, well, they did that, so now I should give them salvation. No, there's nothing that we could ever do to earn our salvation Everything that we do simply heaps condemnation on us. And yet God, in his mercy, chose to reach out in love and salvation. Mercy here signifies God's gracious faithfulness. He acts with compassion towards sinners. And when God's mercy turns towards sinners, salvation results. 
He doesn't sit back with pity in his heart, but, but have no corresponding action. His mercy actively saves. In other words, he doesn't just have a warm heart towards sinners, but when it says that it's according to his mercy, when, his, when he has mercy towards sinners, it, it results in, in saving action. It's effectual. We see this in Titus 3, verse 5, where it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us according to his own mercy. So what does this mean for us, Christian? It means that you can have hope about your future because God the Father has mercifully saved you. The Father has acted on your behalf and has reached into your life and into your heart to bring salvation to you. When he looked upon you and your sin, he didn't turn away. He didn't look somewhere else. He didn't leave you in in your sin and in your filthiness. But in his mercy, he stooped down to come and save you. And because of that, we can have hope. Our hope is secured in the character of God, that our God is merciful. He's been merciful to us in the past. It's according to his mercy that he set upon us in eternity past. We know that he's going to continue to be merciful to us in the future. We know that there's future mercy to us, a mercy and a grace that's going to be revealed. So we rest in the character of God. And so therefore, we are certain that the Father has mercifully planned good for our future because he has mercifully worked good in our past. Christian, you have a vibrant hope about the blessing reserved for you in heaven because you have a merciful Father. He only gives good gifts. And therefore, what he has prepared for you is good. So the first reason we can have hope is that we have a merciful Father. The second is we have a new life. The second reason we have undaunted hope is that we have a new life. This is what Peter says. He says, according to his great mercy, verse 3, he, the Father, has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. To be born again is a funny expression and concept. And it's one that even a great teacher of Israel didn't understand when Jesus presented it to him, as recorded in John 3. But it's there that Jesus makes clear why being born again is so important. Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, a future with God in which everything is made right, is not possible unless radical transformation happens. The future of being in God's kingdom, of being in a place where everything is made right, cannot be guaranteed to one who has not been radically transformed internally. It's a spiritual transformation of the heart that must take place. And this is what it means by being born again. The Bible is clear that apart from God's saving power, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verse 1. We had a heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, 26 says. 
a heart of stone that, that cannot awaken itself to spiritual things. Being dead, we're like a spiritual corpse, and we cannot simply get up out of the grave and, and go towards God. We need, we need divine life to be infused in us. We need someone to speak over us and say, arise. And that's what God the Father has done. Peter says that it's according to the great mercy of the Father that He, the Father, has caused us to be born again. The emphasis here is upon the Father's initiative in bringing about new life. It's because of His mercy that we have new life. Now, even though the Father here is the one being emphasized, is the one who initiates this new life, we know it's God the Spirit who actively produces this life. And this was Jesus' point in John chapter 3, where he says that to be born again is to be born of the Spirit. And Paul echoes this in Titus 3 verse 5, which I read the first part earlier, uh, but he goes on to say that, that we are saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This regeneration, this new life, is by the Holy Spirit. So here we see the Father in His mercy initiating, begetting us anew, giving us, causing us to be born again. And as in His initiative, He brings that about, it's the Spirit that then infuses that breath of life into us. And this new life is not a temporary life. It's not as if we can suddenly wake up from being dead, spiritually dead, and then at some other point we can become spiritually dead again. No, this is an irreversible fact that when we're born again, that we are eternally born again, that we have this spiritual life for the rest of eternity. It's our new status. It's irreversible. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it's here to stay. The new is here. And that is true for all believers in Jesus Christ. Peter is praising God for that, that God in his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And this is, brings us to what we see is, what, what does Peter say that we're born again into? Well, it's into this living hope. In other words, the miracle of new birth is the gateway to hope. The miracle of new birth is the gateway to hope. Without the new birth, we do not have a living hope. Without the Spirit of God giving us this new life, we do not have hope. And so for those of us who are in Jesus this morning, we can have undaunted hope because we know that God has worked this miracle in us. That he has infused his life into our hearts and he's taken our heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh so that we might love him. It is all of his work and therefore we can have hope. And so this should result, as it did for Peter, it resulted in praise to God and so it should for us. Praise the Father for his mercy who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. We praise him for, for bringing this about. I mean, just think of, of the gracious power of God that it took to convert a child of hell to a child of heaven. 
from taking a dead corpse spiritually and making it alive again. This is the mighty power of God in your life, Christian. Does that not want, does that not cause you to, to want to praise God? To say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! That is what it should bring about in our hearts. Because, because we have deserved none of this. Did you earn your new life? Did you earn this mercy? Did you earn this hope? No, we we're spiritually dead. We did nothing. And yet he and his mercy saw us in our desperate plight. And because of his love and compassion, chose to reach out and to give us that life that we might enjoy him for all of eternity. We need to remember that apart from the Father doing this work, we are without hope. As we said, the new life is the gateway to hope, and without it, there is no hope. Paul says this to the Ephesian Christians, that before they were saved, at that time, they were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that is the true for every single person on this planet who does not know Christ. They are separated from Christ, and they have no hope and are without God in this world. People search for hope, but it's like being blind and reaching around for something to grab onto, but with no hope that they will actually grab onto the life-saving salvation. Everything this world has to offer will die and fade away. The hopes that, that people in this world seek to cling on to are not living hopes. They're not even certain hopes. They are, they are dying wishes. They are wishes that they, 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 they hope and, they, and they, they, they cross their fingers thinking that it might happen and they, and they wish that it would, but they don't know if it will. And frequently, those hopes are dashed, and ultimately every hope will be dashed other than the hope that is set upon Christ. But believers in Jesus Christ have a living hope that grows stronger every day as their eyes of faith are set upon the promises of God. So, we have hope. We have undaunted hope because we have a merciful Father, number one, and number two, because we have a new life. We have been regenerated. We are not who we used to be. But the third reason that this text gives us for why we can have hope is because we have a resurrected Savior. We have a resurrected Savior. This great truth that we're celebrating today on this Easter morning, Peter points and highlights here in this text. Look at it again with me. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he, the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have all of this given to us, this new life, this hope, because it came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus, none of this is ours. Peter makes it clear for his readers there in the first century and for us today that their new life and their living hope was brought about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. Even in the midst of their persecutions and sufferings, remember the context, remember this audience, they're suffering believers. And Peter says that even in the midst of those circumstances, they need not be discouraged, they need not beat down, be beat down. Because they know the resurrected Savior. They have a hope of a future blessing that's grounded upon the most significant event in human history. It's not a baseless superstition upon some fairy tale or folk tale. This was not blind, wishful thinking. This was confidence based upon fact. Based upon the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. It wasn't just that God was going to try his best to do what he could, but that God accomplished it through the resurrection of Christ. And friends, make no mistake, it is the fact that the, the Jewish man, Jesus Christ, who is the divine son of God, that he was crucified outside Jerusalem, was buried in a tomb, and then rose from the grave three days later, this is the content of the gospel. This is the content of the good news that we cling to every day and that we proclaim to this world is that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and yet rose again. He did not stay dead. This is the gospel that the apostles took to the world and turned it upside down by their preaching. It's the radical news that there was one who conquered death. One who could not be held by death, and that was Jesus Christ. Notice that it's not a resurrection from a sleep or from simply being from fainting. This is a resurrection from the dead. Jesus truly died. Now, how does the God-man, the one who's 100% man and 100% God in one uh, person, how does that one die well, that is part of the mystery of the incarnation. But we believe the text that says that he was dead, and yet he rose again from that death. And it's this gospel truth that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, I invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. It's important to, to see and to read again that the gospel message has not changed for 2,000 years. It is the same good news for us today as it was when Paul was preaching in the first century. 1 Corinthians 15, look at what was composed in his gospel message, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me. Paul describes this gospel message that Jesus was crucified and died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the Scriptures, and that he then after he appeared, after he rose again, he appeared to many people. 
Paul lists out all these different groups and individuals as showing that, listen, this, this event happened and other people can testify to it. They saw him in the flesh after he had risen again. And it is this event of the resurrection of the Son of God that secures your future and mine. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He promised that whoever believed in him, he would raise up on the last day. We have a future resurrection, a future hope, because we know Jesus, the one who has conquered death. You see, Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection are linked together. They're technically, biblically, one event, but they are two uh, epochs in that one event. Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection in which all those who have trusted in him will be resurrected on that last day. And so the believer's hope comes from a regeneration internally in the present that looks to the resurrection externally in the future. We know that we have been given new life today, and we know that that's a promise, a guarantee as the Spirit has been given to us of of a future resurrection in the future. Now, going back to 1 Peter, it's striking how such a monumental event as the resurrection is handled so simply and it's fit so smoothly into Peter's argument that we can easily gloss over it. It's just one phrase. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And yet, it is the work of Christ upon the cross that, and his subsequent resurrection from the grave that is the cornerstone of our faith. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain, your faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. In other words, Christianity fails to exist if the resurrection did not happen. And so Jesus suffered, died, and then rose again so that we might be made right in God's sight and that we will one day be able to be with him. His work is the ground of our hope. His work is what accomplishes our hope. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So believer, Jesus defeated death so that you don't have to taste its sting. Jesus defeated Satan so that you could be set free from his clutches and slavery. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God so that you would never taste or experience it. We must worship Christ, church. We must worship Jesus for securing our hope for us. He is our victor. He is our Lord and King. He is the servant leader who laid down his life for us and now leads us in triumph. And we follow him through our lives here on this earth, through our pilgrimage, our sojourning here, and follow him into the glorious heaven one day. You've heard it said before that you can go to the graves of many religious leaders and founders of religious movements, such as Muhammad or Gandhi or others, but Christ's grave is empty. He laid there for three days, but he's there no more. And it's because of that fact that we have a living hope that is undaunted by anything that we can experience in this life. One pastor put it this way. He said, the world hopes for the best, 
but Jesus Christ offers the best hope. The world hopes for the best, but Jesus Christ offers the best hope. So believer, look to your resurrected Savior and find the hope that's found in him alone. Well, the fourth and last reason that we can have undaunted hope is because we have a guaranteed inheritance. We have a guaranteed inheritance. We see this in verses 4 through 5. Peter says that we've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So our last and final reason for hope this morning gives some clarity about what we're hoping for. We've been talking about the fact that we have hope, but we haven't really specified about what's the content of that hope. What is just around the corner that we can be so confident of? Well, verses 4 and 5 use two different words to describe that to which we are looking forward. Verse 4 calls it our inheritance, and verse 5 calls it a salvation to be revealed at the last time. I believe these two terms are describing essentially the same thing. They're speaking of a future time, a future location, and a future event which will bring blessing to believers beyond their wildest dreams. The details given here in verses 4 through 5 really uh, fulfill our deepest desires for security. We want to know that our investments, that the things that we're banking on and counting on, cannot be touched or destroyed. I mean, think about it with our financial investments. We want to make investments that, that cannot lose their value, that cannot be stolen, and that can be accessed at a later date that we can get. Now, ultimate guarantees cannot be made on, here on this earth. But Peter makes it clear that the inheritance that our Father has prepared for us has all of those guarantees. In fact, it's got the strongest guarantees imagined. Let's look at how he describes these. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is first imperishable. It's imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. Death cannot touch it. Nothing can wash away or demolish what God has promised for us. But it's also undefiled. This is a perfect inheritance. This is an inheritance that has no stain upon it, no sin to mar it. Nothing can cause it to be blemished. Therefore, it is the best, most beautiful thing for us. But not only is it undefiled, but it's unfading. It's unfading. Even things that don't get stained by an outside substance can still lose their beauty and and glimmer over time. But that's not true with our inheritance with God. It will last forever. And it will never never lag in beauty. It, It does not get weaker. It does not get dimmer. It does not get smaller over time. It remains glorious for all of eternity. And so when you and I 
access that inheritance one day, it will be as beautiful as it's ever been. It'll be as secure and locked tight as it's ever been. <laughs> and what's wonderful to know is that this glorious inheritance is under lock and key by the most powerful person in the universe. Look, it says that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This is uh, this verb is a passive. It's a divine passive, meaning that God is the one who keeps it. God is the one who keeps it in heaven for us. Notice, beloved, the, the strong power that, that it's, that's used here, that it's being kept, it's being guarded in heaven. There's a century around your inheritance, and it cannot allow anything to touch it. And it's not just a generic inheritance. It's an inheritance kept in heaven for you. It's got your name on it. And when you show up, you'll see it there. And God will say, I've saved this for you. I've protected it and kept it for you, believer, my child. Do you see the personal intimacy of that gift? Of that security that we have from our loving Father? You see, Peter emphasized in the strongest possible terms the security and certainty of the reward awaiting us believers. And then, just in case that Peter was worried that his his audience was thinking that they might miss out on this reward uh, because they themselves might uh, crash and burn along the way, that they might not make it to the end, Peter reassures them that just as God is guarding their inheritance for them, God is also guarding them for their inheritance. He's guarding both sides. He's guarding the inheritance for us when we get there, and he's guarding us so that we can make it to our inheritance. Look at verse 5. Who, meaning you, us believers, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Believer, God is guarding us through our faith. He is strengthening our faith, keeping us strong so that we might be trusting and believing in him every step of the way. Our perseverance as a Christian in this life does not ultimately depend upon us. Yes, we must believe. Yes, we must trust. We can never not believe. Unbelief is damning. But our confidence that our faith will remain strong is not a confidence in us. It's a confidence in God who keeps us. It's by His power and not our own. That gives us comfort and hope. We will make it to the finish line. We will see that inheritance. We will meet that good thing that's just around the corner of, in our lives because we're being guarded by God. Because of God's power, the believer is guarded through faith, through our pilgrimage here on earth. And when that pilgrimage ends, when our salvation will be revealed, it'll be the most glorious thing that we've ever seen. The future salvation that is awaiting us will be our complete redemption. It will be a salvation that is full and complete, lacking in nothing. And we will enter into heaven to receive our promised reward. But what is this promised reward 
really? What is this salvation? What is this inheritance? I know you're asking. That's what I was asking too. What will our inheritance look like? And I personally, friends, find it hard to put my mind around what that future glory will be like. And I went looking for some help, looking for someone that could describe it for us to help thrill our hearts for what awaits us in heaven. And so I found this extended description so beneficial that I want to read it to you. And as you listen, Christian, soak in the promised inheritance that God has promised for you, not just for the church generally, but for each believer specifically. Dear believers, it's the beginning of the quote here, dear believers, you will receive a never-fading crown on Judgment Day. Your Savior will usher you into heaven of heavens with other believers as one family. As a living member of his perfected church, he will present you as his bride without spot or wrinkle to his Father to enter glory. You will dwell forever with Christ, who will feed you and lead you to living waters. You will drink of the fountains of the triune God, praising him for all eternity and the most holy, glorious activities, many of which are beyond imagination. All that you have experienced here of God and his gracious salvation will be but shadows compared to what you will enjoy in heaven. In heaven, every negative will disappear and every positive will be multiplied. The negative is that we will no longer battle with Satan, the tempting world, our old nature, tears and sorrow, ill health, and ill treatment from others, for all will pass away when we come to that better world. There will be no more fear of temptation, of death, of failing, of bringing shame on Christ's name, or of departing from the faith. Heaven will also be full of positives. The supreme positive will be the fact that we will be forever with the Lord. In that world, Christ will never be out of your sight, dear believer. He will be in your eye, before your face, and within earshot for you to talk to and to worship. He will be there to adore, to answer your questions, and to thank for what he has done for you. Heaven will also be a place of perfect activities, such as worshiping God with praise and singing, serving God and exercising authority by reigning with Christ, fellowshipping with saints and angels, learning about God and his truth, and resting in his perfect peace. Then, too, heaven will be a place of gracious reward for believers' faithfulness here below and of abundant compensation for their suffering on earth. Heaven will also be a place of perfect holiness. It'll be absolutely pure and clean. There'll be no infirmity there and not one, and there will be not one speck of dust or may I say virus. All evil will be walled out and all good will be walled in. Finally, heaven will be a world of love. Already, God's grace for believers is an infinite and overflowing fountain of love. Spurgeon puts it this way, it was as though some little fish, being very thirsty, was troubled about drinking the river dry. 
And yet the river said, Drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for thee. How much more will this be true in heaven? Oh, magnificent hope, magnificent love. Jonathan Edwards says that God's love in heaven is an ocean of love that has no shores or bottom. Dear pilgrim, keep your eye on the celestial city. End quote. You see, when we have our hope fixed upon this heavenly reward, it changes everything. Our life here on earth changes when we have our eyes set upon heaven. I want to suggest four ways that having our eyes, having our hope set upon heaven changes how we live in the here and now. The first is that it increases our praise to the triune God. It increases our praise to the triune God. Remember that this passage, Peter breaks out in praise to God. And then he goes on to describe this gospel, this good news of, of all these wonderful benefits that come to believers. The Father moves towards us in love, even when we deserved his wrath. The Spirit regenerated us so that we could believe and live eternally. The Son accomplished our complete redemption through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we can praise God and say, glory be to God the Father, glory be to God the Son, glory be to God the Spirit. The Lord is our salvation. And so as we set our gaze upon heaven, when we increase our praise to the triune God, the second way that it changes our lives in the here and now is that it increases our longing for heaven and decreases our attachment to this world. You see, once we realize that we're pilgrims passing through this world, that this is not our home, that we have a home that's in heaven awaiting us, then we realize that we are not to be attached to the things of this world, the things that we see around us. This life is not all there is, that there's an eternity that awaits us. And that is what we long for when everything will be made right, when we'll be with our God forever. We must have our hearts set on our heavenly home. Thirdly, it increases our endurance in suffering. It increases our endurance in suffering. You see, one of Peter's goals in reminding his readers of the hope, the living hope that they have in the inheritance that awaits for them in heaven is that it, it would strengthen them in the midst of difficulty. It would strengthen them in the midst of suffering. Because that's exactly where he turns to after our verses that we've looked at this morning. We've looked at verses 3 through 5, but in verses 6 and 7, he turns to, to encourage the believers to remain strong and to know that these sufferings are not going to erase that future hope. That, in fact, it really only refines our faith so it might result in greater praise of God on that future day. We must be persuaded that the joys of heaven will be worth all that we experience here. That it will, what we experience in heaven will make amends for all the losses, all the pains, all the suffering that we experience here below, if indeed we follow God faithfully. And so we can endure difficulty. 
We can endure suffering because we have a living hope, a hope that is set upon a certain future that is promised to us, eternal life with God forever. Fourth and lastly, the way that having our hope set upon heaven changes the here and now is that it increases our drive to live holy lives. It increases our drive to live holy lives. Friends, when we set our hopes upon heaven and being reunited with with Christ, it changes how we live today. It changes the decisions that we make. That we would not live for ourselves, that we would not live in frivolity and, uh, and spend our lives on trivial things and following after the passions of our flesh. But that we would seek to be holy, to be ready to meet our Lord. And again, this is exactly where Peter goes in the text. A few verses down, he turns the corner. He's just talked about the inheritance in heaven. And then he turns and says, thus it should make you live differently. Look in verse 13. 1 Peter 1, we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Friends, we are in exile. We are pilgrims. We don't belong here. This isn't our home. We're traveling to our home. And if that's true, Peter says to set our hope on the grace that's going to be revealed to us. And therefore, as obedient children now to our merciful father, We need to conduct ourselves in holiness. We need to change how we live. And so therefore, there is a direct connection between the strength of our hope for heaven and the holiness of our lives here on earth. Friends, if you're having, if you're seeing sin pop up in your life frequently, and if you're you're frustrated by the, the frequent displays of the flesh in your life, then one of the ways that you can help yourself to walk fully in holiness, is to set your gaze upon heaven. Set your hope on the Lord and all that he's promised for you. Because you realize that this isn't our home, that we're preparing ourselves to meet our Savior. And so we want to have our lives walk in holiness now that we might be pure and undefiled before him. And so I end this morning asking if you have this hope that we've been talking about. Do you have hope in your heart of hearts When you put your head in the pillow at night, are you despairing? Or do you have hope? Hope that's not wishful thinking, but that is locked in, that is absolutely certain. Are you certain that you will experience the joys of heaven? If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? My heart and prayer is that you would be able to know this hope, that you would be able to, to have this hope to cling to through all the days of your life. And the good news is it's offered to every single person. God has made this hope available. But it's not a hope that you can earn. 
It's not something that you simply can achieve by doing certain religious things and then God is obligated to give you this hope. No, this is a hope that comes to you by the sovereign gift of God. And so, if you know that you don't have hope, if you know that you're dead in your sin, if you know that you don't have Christ, then I encourage you to cry out to the merciful Father that we've spoken of. Cry out to Him that He would save you. Say, God, be merciful to me. Please save me. I'm lost in my sin. I trust in Jesus. I trust in His death, burial, and resurrection that that was for me, that He paid the penalty for my sins upon that cross. Please forgive me for my rebellion. Please forgive me for my sin. Please make me new. And folks, that is a prayer that God loves to answer, to give new life to sinners who are repentant before Him. For every sinner, for any of us, our only hope is the mercy of God. And I pray that you would look to the merciful God today to find that hope. Now, if you have any further questions about your relationship with God or anything that I've said, I encourage you to go to our website Uh, Click on the link there to be able to contact me, to find my email. I'd be happy to engage you and and to talk with you about these things. It's a different format than being together in the same room, but I want to be able to help you. So if, if, if you would like to do that, please reach out and contact me, and I'd love to further the conversation with you. My prayer for all of us is that we would be able to have a certain hope all the days of our lives. May God be graciously give that to us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have given us a living hope, a hope that cannot fade away, a hope that that cannot be diminished. And I pray that your church would stand upon that hope, would cling to that hope, even in the midst of difficult, trying circumstances, even in the midst of death, Father, that we would be able to to see the hope that we have in heaven. Oh God, strengthen our faith, strengthen our hearts, strengthen our hope, and we'll give you all the praise. And it's through Jesus, the resurrected Lord, that we pray. Amen. I pray that you have been blessed by the study of the Word of God this morning. Again, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Go in peace.